at least the, the second portion of the book of Corinthians, but we think also perhaps even the first portion. And uh, we saw that uh, one of the great truths of First and Second uh, Chronicles is God showing and displaying um, that when His people forsake Him, He withdraws His blessings from them. And when they're obedient to Him, then He gives great victory. And we see that time and time again uh, throughout both books, uh, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, they were originally one book. We talked a little bit about that last week. And then we talked about uh, the 20 kings that are specifically mentioned in Second Chronicles. And one of the reasons that God prolonged the captivity of Judah, this is the, the, um, uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that are in the, what we refer to as the southern kingdom. Their capital was in Jerusalem. And uh, then you have, of course, the ten northern tribes. They were known as the ten lost tribes of Israel or the northern kingdom. Um, and, uh, but uh, this is mostly centered around Judah and primarily because Judah... Uh, while they did have idolatry, and about 12 of their kings were very evil and very wicked, uh, there were eight kings that were at least somewhat good in the early part of their reign. Uh, most all of them uh, were, uh, as they got up in years and as they got further into their reign, they weren't quite as, as uh, zealous for the Lord and the things of the Lord. Uh, and so I want to just real quickly go through a very quick summary. I do have these notes available. You're welcome to write down notes if you'd like to, but I will have these available for you after the uh, Sunday school hour if you'd like to have them. But I'm going to go down through a list of these kings real quick and just briefly state a real quick summary of each of them, what they were noted for. So let me give a real quick sketch of where we're at historically. Uh, so if you can remember all the way back, uh, Israel decides they want a king, and the first king they had was Saul. And then, of course, Saul um, did some things, and the kingdom was taken from him. And so Dan, uh, David becomes the second king of Israel, and perhaps one of the greatest kings of Israel as far as kings go. Solomon, even though he's not revered in the eyes of the Jewish people, uh, as great as David was as a king, it was under Solomon's reign that Israel really kind of reached its pinnacle uh, in glory and, and world power and recognition. And uh, Israel has, has never historically, before that time or since that time, ever reached the level that they were at under Solomon's reign. And then after Solomon, we find that the kingdoms are divided. And um, we have uh, Rehoboam uh, to the north in the northern kingdoms and Jeroboam to the south in the southern kingdoms. Both of them were wicked kings uh, to begin with. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I had that backwards. We have Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Uh, it's hard to keep the Boam brothers straight sometimes. Uh, but we start off with those two. So we have uh, Rehoboam south, Jeroboam in the north. Both of them were wicked kings. And uh, yet we find that there is uh, a line an unbroken line through the uh, southern kingdom primarily of the Davidic line of, of uh, the throne. And you will find that that line from the time of David all the way through to the time of Christ in the book of Matthew is an unbroken line uh, because God had promised David that his kingdom was going to be an everlasting kingdom and uh, that uh, one day the Messiah would actually sit on David's throne. And what a thought that is as you think about this. So let me go through real quickly uh, just 20 of these kings. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. They're uh, just, this is just by way to give us a general view of the cycles, if you will. Uh, the, under the eight kings that sought um, to do right in the eyes of the Lord is often the phrase that the Bible uses. 
Um, out of all of them, you'll find that when revival came to the nation of Israel, it only lasted for that generation under that king's reign. Uh, you never find, even after a godly king, a second king coming after him that was also godly. There was always um, a wicked king after them that led them back into idolatry. So we're going to start with Rehoboam. <clears throat> Rehoboam, of course, was not righteous. Uh, he was a wicked king. However, uh, God prolongs his judgment on Judah. Because even though Rehoboam was an evil king, he did uh, um, humble himself before God. He doesn't repent. He doesn't lead Israel away from their idolatry. But he does have a humbleness in the eyes of God. He has a recognition for God. And he averts the judgment that God is going to bring on Judah uh, as a result of the fact that he's just humbled himself uh, towards the end of his reign especially. After him was Abijah, uh, and he had a very, very short reign. He was very evil. And um, under, his, under his reign, uh, Judah actually, who's only two tribes strong, conquers the ten tribes of Israel for a short period of time. <clears throat> and the reason that they did was because, the, and this is the phrase the Bible uses, was because the children of Israel um, were relying upon the Lord God, I think was the way it was worded. It relied upon the Lord God, or their trust was in the Lord God, I think is the way it's worded. It doesn't say that the king did, but the children of Judah did. And so because of the fact that even their leadership was a, a wicked and, and an ungodly king, because of the fact that the people made a choice uh, to look to the God for their trust, they were able to conquer the nation of Israel, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, for a period of time under his reign. And uh, I think there's a valuable lesson to be learned there. Somebody said years ago, and I know Dr. Robertson uh, was one that kind of made this statement uh, very strong in, in our, our movement of folks around the, uh, this thing. He said, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I understand the concept of that. But the truth of the matter is, each of us has, has our own will, and we make, make our own choice. And for us to say, well, I did evil because my leadership was evil is not an excuse. Um, sometimes we put that phrase, everything rises and falls on leadership. Uh, we, we, uh, we use that to excuse why we're not doing correctly. And that is no excuse. Here they had an, an evil king, and yet because the children of Judah... Uh, looked and relied upon the Lord and put their faith and their trust in Him, God gives them victory in spite of their ruler. Uh, the third king was Asa. Now, Asa was the first king uh, after Solomon, who is a godly king. Um, he destroys, the first thing he does when he comes in, he destroys the altars of the idols and uh, kind of purges um, uh, Israel from this, and he restores the altar of the Lord. By the way, I think another valuable Bible lesson is learned in this. Because a lot of times uh, when we're trying to become more of what we ought to be as a Christian, we look at things that we're doing wrong and we say, okay, I'm going to get those out of my life. But then we don't replace it with something that is Christ-honoring. And it wasn't enough for Asa to just simply destroy the altars of the idols. He also had to build the altar to the Lord. Because getting the people to just quit worshiping the false idols was only half the battle. Getting them to put their worship back in God was the rest of the battle. Um, as he got threatened by Israel in later years of his life, and uh, he, he took his eyes off of the Lord. He was afraid of the power of, and the might, the, the military number, if you will, of Israel to the north. And he's frightened by that. He does not trust God uh, for the victory, and as such, they lose a the battle uh, in that area. And so Asa is a godly king, but again, as so many do, as he got older in years, he began to get his eyes off of God. Jehoshaphat... Um, Brings great revival. Uh, he follows Asa. 
Um, and this is found in chapter number 17 and verse number 6. He overthrows the idols. So again, uh, keep in mind, uh, what did Asa do when he first came into power? He destroyed the altars and the idols, didn't he? And yet when Jehoshaphat, who follows him, comes in, <coughs> he has to also overthrow the idols. Why? I thought that's what Asa did. And the reason is because in the latter years of Asa's life, this was beginning to become part of Israel again. They were starting to revert again to idolatry. We're going to see if we get into the book of Ezra enough far enough today. You're going to see that there's a reason why Israel often turns to idols. And we're going to look at that reason in Scripture. And you can mark me down if you'll research it throughout the Old Testament and look at it very closely. You'll find that this particular reason is almost, not, not in every case, but almost always the same reason why they fall into idolatry. And uh, we're going to look at this again. Number uh, verse, uh, The fourth king, Jehoshaphat, he uh, overthrows the idols. And then he does something that other kings have not done yet, and that is that he teaches God's word to the people. Uh, again, just a wonderful truth here uh, that when you clean things up in your life, uh, you need to have the strength and the principles and the, the uh, encouragement from God's word to remain consistent in that life. And um, he trusts in the Lord, and he's one of the few kings that there's very little negatively said about him. Uh, out, out of the uh, eight godly kings, he's uh, one of the few that is truly godly throughout most all of his reign. Again, as he gets to the end of his uh, years, he begins to dwindle a little bit, and some of this begins to creep back in. Then we have Jehoram, uh, who follows Jehoshaphat. He's a very wicked king. He follows in the steps of Ahab. Ahab is the king in Israel at this time and is the most wicked king by far, uh, primarily because he married a wicked queen. And Je uh, Jezebel was probably uh, more instrumental in the wickedness of Ahab than Ahab's own wickedness in and of himself. And uh, Ahab and uh, Jezebel have a daughter uh, named Ahaziah, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Athaliah who married uh, Jehoram's son, Ahaziah. And he becomes the next king of, of Judah. And um, because of Athaliah, we find there is an attempt to destroy the entire line of David. Athaliah spends all of her time as, as queen of Judah. Uh, this is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who married the king in Judah. Um, he, she spends most all of her time influencing her husband in, in his rule and his reign over Judah and really makes an, an, a, just an unbelievable attempt to uh, wipe out the line of David. Uh, as far as we know from Scripture, we only know of one surviving person uh, in the line of David after she is through with this, which is all God needs. Amen? There's always something that God keeps and protects. And what a, what a blessing it is to see this. And so we have Ahaziah and Athaliah kind of ruling and reigning together as husband and wife. And Athaliah probably even more instrumental politically and more, I guess, would be the, 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 the show of power uh, in the kingdom than even her husband Ahaziah. And uh, she, again, is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel from the northern kingdom. Then we have Joash. Joash is a godly king. He repairs the temple. He restores the worship of God, and later uh, in life, he allows the people to abandon uh, the worship in the temple and to return to idolatry. So again, we see another cycle of a godly king who does the right thing in the early part of his, of his reign, but then later on uh, begins to uh, deviate. Then we have Uzziah. 
I'm sorry, I missed one. We have Amaziah, uh, and he has uh, a relationship with God uh, that's kind of mixed. He's, he's kind of on fire for God one minute and seeking for God, and then the next minute he's kind of forsaking God, and he kind of goes back and forth during the whole time of his reign. And uh, at the end, he forsakes the Lord for the God of Edom, gods of Edom, and uh, is later defeated by Israel, and then some, uh, later on somebody murders him uh, as king or assassinates him. And uh, that's because of his, uh, his final forsaking of God. He, he kind of battled it throughout most of his reign. There was some good about him, but there was a lot of bad about him as well. And uh, that was uh, Amaziah. Then you got Uzziah, who begins well with God. He's blessed at first. And uh, he's very, very strong, a uh, very strong leader of Judah. But over time, he becomes proud. And this is his downfall. He becomes very presumptuous. Um, he begins to play the role of a priest, uh, which was one of the things that Saul did that was such a, a, a difficult thing for, um, for him, and, and God judged him for that. But Uzziah comes in, and he plays the role of a priest by offering incense in the temple, and because of that, God strikes him with leprosy. And uh, there, is, there is, and we live in a day uh, where men's philosophy, men's mindset, is that nothing is, is sacred anymore. Nothing is reverent anymore. And I tell you, the things of God are sacred. Uh, he sets them aside. He expects them to be um, dealt with with an era of, uh, with an air of reverence. Uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, on a youth conference trip, and uh, our youth camp trip. We went to a youth camp, and they had an open-air tabernacle where they would have the preaching services, and they had uh, uh, sawdust floors and some chairs and, uh, and just folding chairs and just kind of a very rustic area, but a shaded pavilion that you could meet under for the preaching time. And uh, one afternoon, we were doing some activities and things, and we had a break in the activities. It was hot. And we went over to the canteen and got something to drink, some sodas. And we walked over and we just wanted to find some shade. So we sat in the back row there of the tabernacle under the shade pavilion just to get a little bit of shade. And one of the workers came up and said, we want to ask if you would just to step outside of the tabernacle if you're going to be drinking something. And uh, he explained to us, he said, it's not that this building is sacred or, or the, the chairs or the sawdust or the metal building. He said, but we like to think that what goes on in this place is very, very sacred, and it's not to be treated as common. And I thought, boy, what a, what a tremendous thought. Because as you look at God as he, as he instructs Israel and He guides Israel in this thing of temple worship, uh, he's, He takes these things very seriously. His things are sacred. What belongs to Him is very sacred. By the way, uh, what is His temple today? What is it? We are His temple. He takes that as very, very sacred. Uh, by the way, if we could understand that truth in our society, there wouldn't even be a debate about abortion anymore. There wouldn't be a debate about homosexuality anymore. There wouldn't be a debate about all the crime and the drugs and things that are going on, people murdering folks and life being counted as cheap. Uh, by the way, if we would consider that in our own lives, it would change the way we live. We would live with... The idea that my body is sacred, it belongs to God. It is his, it's his temple, it's the place where he resides. And as such, it ought to bear a testimony to him. And uh, so here's this guy, he becomes very prideful and very presumptuous. And he comes in and he kind of, kind of makes common the practice of worship that God had inst installed back then that was only to be practiced by the priests. 
And he comes in as a king, and he's, he offers the incense in the temple. And as a result of that, God judges him. And you say, well, does God judge everybody that doesn't take his thing sacred today? No. It's a good thing he doesn't, because most of us would be struck. Uh, but we find by how he deals with it, with Uzziah, we find what his heart is on the issue. We know how he views these things. And when we know how God views them, it ought to be our desire to come in line with that. It ought to be the desire of our heart. In fact, it ought to be the thrill of our hearts to say, I, I, I want to learn to become more like what Christ wants. What, what is it that he wants? What is his desire? And it ought to be something that we willingly say, I love, I love pleasing God. I don't have to. I don't make myself do it. I love doing it because I love Him. And I love Him because He loved me so much and did so much for me. And uh, I think we need to learn these things as, as we go through some of these uh, kings to learn from their mistakes and the things that they have to teach us. And so Uzziah is kind of one of those key folks that I think has a great lesson to be taught. Then we have Jotham. Uh, number 11 is Jotham. He rebuilds the gate of the temple. He reveres God and during his reign has prosperity and victory. Again, another one of the kings, one of the very few kings that there's very little, if any, negatively said about him. Uh, he was a godly king. He led uh, Judah during a time of prosperity. And again, God blesses because they're obedient to him. And uh, then our twelfth king is Ahaz. Ahaz is a wicked king. Now, this is not to be confused with Ahab. Okay, Ahab is the one that married Jezebel and was in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, we're talking about Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz is a wicked king. He's an idolater. During his time, uh, Judah is oppressed by their enemies. They're forced to give tribute to the Assyrians. And for the first time, they come under uh, a dominant um, captivity that is off and on now for a number of years before the Babylonian captivity kind of absorbs both Israel and Judah together. Uh, at some point under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, he defeats the Assyrians. And since the Assyrians were uh, holding Judah to tribute um, by, by purpose of inheritance, I guess, uh, Babylon conquers Judah as well and, and without raising a sword or having to conquer it just because they conquered the Assyrians. Who, under uh, Ahaz's reign, uh, we find the Assyrians becoming very prominent in uh, oppressing Judah, putting them under tribute. And, um, and this is kind of the beginning of the end, if you will, of, of Judah's decline. God is finally tired of the on-again, off-again cycle of idolatry. He's prolonged his judgment longer than the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, because there have been some godly kings. But he's finally through with that, and he says uh, there, there is now going to be judgment from the Assyrians off and on uh, between now and the, in the time of the Babylonian captivity. Then we have Hezekiah who comes in. Hezekiah uh, repairs and reopens the temple. He puts away all the altars and the idols that uh, Ahaz had set up. Uh, Judah is spared of destruction from the Assyrians because of his righteousness. And if we remember some of that story, uh, God gives him a choice of how long he can be without uh, uh, being overrun by the Assyrians. And after he makes his choice, or he does what God had instructed him to do, God kind of chastens him and chastises him and says, you should ask for longer. <laughs> and uh, he didn't. Uh, so, but they, during the time of uh, his reign, God spares them from the uh, Assyrians. His record in Kings is only a few verses, 
but in uh, uh, the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles specifically, they give three chapters to the King Hezekiah. Again, because of the more spiritual view, I think, of this particular book, they're looking more at his spiritual aspect than his political uh, aspirations or his, his reign as king. Um, but Hezekiah is another one of the godly kings, very good king of uh, Judah. And uh, even though God has begun the oppression of the Assyrians, he gives a pause, he gives a break, and uh, because of the godliness of Hezekiah. And it's amazing, isn't it? How sometimes one man's actions affect so many. Because God spares the nation of Judah uh, because of Hezekiah, because of one king. Now, I, I, granted, I understand that under his leadership, the whole of, of Judah was more inclined to have their hearts towards the things of the Lord. I'm sure that bore part in it. But sometimes we get the idea that our actions only affect us. The truth is... Over and over again in Scripture, we find God doing things for other people for somebody's sake. Uh, if you remember back to Abraham, God, God blesses Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, his family, for Abraham's sake. Uh, you look at David, there are times that God blesses people uh, because of David's sake. And God will say that, for David's sake. Uh, so over and over and over again in Scripture, we find that for one man's sake, God spares others. Think about the time of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. God was willing to spare Sodom. Even for, what was it, five? I think it got down to five or it might have been ten. I guess it was ten righteous people because Lot had a number of folks in his family. They couldn't even find ten righteous people. And God was willing to spare the entire city, as wicked as it was, for Abraham's sake, if he could have found ten righteous people. And uh, very important that we learn this lesson. Our actions do not just affect ourselves. Uh, our children may be blessed for our sake. Uh, we certainly need to understand these things. And, uh, and then we have um, uh, Manasseh. Manasseh comes after Hezekiah. And one of, Hezekiah being one of the, the more popular kings, I guess you would say, because three whole chapters are, are dedicated to him. And his rule, he's a godly king. And then we have Manasseh. Manasseh comes after Hezekiah and is the most, hands down, the most wicked king uh, that Judah ever has out of these 20. Out of all of them, he's the most wicked. <clears throat> he sets up idols and altars all over the land. He is carried away uh, by the Assyrians. And uh, this is interesting to see. And what a wonderful picture of God's uh, forgiveness and willingness to accept you. In the latter years of his captivity, he repents. And God returns him back to Judah. And he begins to make spiritual reform. And just before great revival begins to break out in Judah, uh, he's killed or he dies. But he was on his way to leading Judah into a spiritual reform. And we're talking about the most wicked king in all of Judah. If that doesn't speak to the grace of God, I don't know what does. When he was willing to repent and turn from his ways and, say, and seek after the Lord God, uh, God returns him back to Judah, gave him his throne back, and allows him to lead the people of Judah in spiritual awakening. And they don't get very far before he's, uh, his reign ends. And uh, a fellow by the name of Ammon uh, comes into uh, existence. This is the son of Manasseh. Ammon uh, also is a wicked king. Um, and he and his father are murdered together. He comes into power just slightly uh, before Manasseh dies. 
and uh, the two of them are murdered together. Uh, and then we have Josiah, uh, number 16. Josiah was, again, a godly king. Uh, he brought spiritual revival, and it was marked uh, by his reign. He was a very young king. Um, his, his emphasis centered around temple and the worship of God being restored in the temple and to do it the way that they were instructed to. He finds the book of the law, and he opens it, and they read it. They reinstate the Passover. And so he is very much wanting to seek after what the law of God says. And as so many before him... Uh, as he got older in life and his reign began to conclude, he uh, began to listen to uh, some advisors that directed him otherwise and uh, was not quite as, as godly at the end of his reign as he was at the beginning. Then we have Jehoahaz, and uh, he was relentlessly evil and uh, kind of was the beginning of the, the complete fall and destruction of Judah uh, as a country. Uh, under him, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, one with an M at the end of it, one with an N at the end of it, both of them sounding very similar. Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, uh, both sons of Jehoahaz, um, they kind of all reign at that same time period, and it's a very rapid decline of Judah. And then the last king of Judah that we have, the 20th king, is uh, Zedekiah. Uh, he's also wicked, and it's under his reign that Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And the Babylonian captivity begins. And um, uh, let's see, under the Babylonian captivity, just let me say this real quick and then we'll move on to Ezra. Um, under the Babylonian captivity, we find uh, it extending for 70 years. Uh, and part of that is under Persian reign, but the captivity is there. Uh, Cyrus, who becomes the first Persian emperor is the one who gives the edict or the command for the remnant of, of the Jews to return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and rebuild the walls. And there are very strict and very, very precise prophetic dates that are given about when the decree took place till the time of the Lord Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem. And it is down to the day. It's down to the hours and minutes, I think, even though the Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, the specific hour and date and, and uh, thing. But it does tell us that there's going to be a, a very precise, a very exact amount of time from the time of the command going forth uh, to return to Jerusalem until the time of Christ. And uh, we find that those uh, have been exactly the way that they were prophesied. Isn't that amazing? Uh, we're going to find out in the book of Ezra, and this is, I'll go ahead and share it with you. But 200 years before Cyrus was king of Persia, uh, Isaiah prophesied that he would be the one that would cause Israel to go back to Jerusalem. And he even names him. Uh, we live in a day where people try to have psychic things and you hear things like Nostradamus and some of these folks that have uh, very generalized, cryptic, riddle-type uh, prophecies that if you read it this way and slant your eyes funny and hold your tongue the right way, it might fulfill this prophecy here. That's not the kind of prophecy God does in Scripture. He gets it very precise. 200 years before Cyrus, Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus is going to come and he's going to be the one to issue the decree for Israel to go back uh, to Jerusalem and uh, to have Jerusalem restored and the temple rebuilt. And lo and behold, guess what happened? When Cyrus became king, it happened, didn't it? If we can read Scripture... 
and still doubt that this is God's Word. I don't understand how we can do that. When we see such precise uh, answers to prophecy that are verified by even secular historians. And uh, it's amazing how many times, uh, even in the writings of some of these secular historians that were uh, contemporary of the day or shortly after this time, how they don't like to admit, but they have to, because it was part of the historical record that, yes, this prophecy came true. And it came true so precisely that there's no doubt that it was a prophecy from God. And uh, so we learned some of these things. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead and move on to Ezra. We're not going to get real far today because we've got about five minutes left. But we'll go ahead and start on Ezra. And then we'll finish up there next week. And it's good, good to get a little head start on Ezra because it was probably going to be about a, a one and a half Sunday school lesson anyway. Because of its, it's a short book, uh, only ten chapters long. But a lot of material in Ezra. And uh, Ezra begins right on the heels of uh, the books of Chronicles uh, and makes really kind of an uninterrupted uh, continuation of the history of both Israel and Judah, primarily um, with a priestly view or a spiritual view once again. Ezra is, uh, is one of the priestly line that can be traced uh, directly back to Aaron, uh, which is an interesting thing about Ezra. Uh, but he continues the history that's given in, uh, in the books of Chronicles. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were often placed in the same book. They were bound together in the same book. Um, and the reason was because it was such a, an uninterrupted history between the two of them uh, that oftentimes they were put together. And uh, Ezra was uh, first referred to in the Septuagint, which was uh, the Greek translation, if you will, of the uh, Old Testament. Um, that was done in about the 3rd century, I believe it was, somewhere in there. It was translated into Greek. And uh, that was the first time that the, the title or the, the name was given to it as the second exodus. So Ezra is referred to uh, in the Septuagint as the second exodus because it's showing the end of the Babylonian captivity and how Israel comes out and returns back to Jerusalem. Um, and even though it's not as grand, it's not as well known as the exodus from uh, Egypt, uh, it still is a, a wonderful, uh, miraculous, if you will. And I think in one, one, one or two cases, even uh, one of the things you look at and say, God has to have a sense of humor the way he went about doing this. And uh, sometimes God does things in such a way that we just look at it and say, he did it just because he's God and he can. And uh, we kind of get a, a, a chuckle out of it because it's just amazing to see how he works sometimes. Not so much that he works, we expect that. But how he works is so amazing sometimes. And I'm going to show, I don't know if we'll get that far today, but next week I want to, we'll share a little bit of one of the things that he does that I think is just, um, God did it just because he could, just because he's God. And uh, what an amazing thing. The main emphasis of uh, the book of Ezra is to show how God fulfills his promises to return the people back to the promised land. After 70 years of Babylonian captivity, uh, he restores them. I'm sure during that 70-year period, some of them were scratching their head thinking, I don't see how this will ever uh, come back around to where we can be returned back to Jerusalem and we can be our own country again, our own nation. But they do, and uh, God uh, brings that all about. He divides this, uh, this particular book into two main sections. There's the first return back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, and then there's a second return, and that's chapters 1 through 6, 
Then there's a second return that happens um, about about 56 years, I think, right about 60 years, somewhere in that range later, uh, that's under the leadership of Ezra. He takes a smaller group, about 2,000 folks or so, uh, back to Jerusalem as a second return uh, to Jerusalem. But there's about a 56, 57-year gap between the first return and the second return. The second return is covered in chapters 7 through 10 and is the second portion of the book. So if you think of it in terms of reading this book, uh, keep in mind there were two distinct times where there was a return. There were about, at this point, as best estimates as most people look at, there were probably close between 2 and 3 million Jews that were at that time living in Babylon. When Cyrus gives the decree to go back and says, you guys have authority, you're welcome to, we want you to go back, and Zerubbabel um, takes uh, the first return group back, there is only about, out of, out of think about this, out of at least 2 million people, probably as many as 3 million people, there was only 50,000 Jews that decided to go back to Jerusalem. It's a pretty small amount. It's just a remnant. It's a very, very, very minute number. And the reason for that is there was some, there was some hardship to it. It was about a 900-mile journey to get there. When they got there, the city was in ruins. It had no walls. The walls were crumbled, and there was debris there. The temple was destroyed. So Zerubbabel uh, goes and he, he brings the people back to Jerusalem, and his, his priorities are in order. He uh, builds the altar first, and he establishes the feasts again and begins worship of God. And then he begins the construction on the temple. He does so for about two years, and there's a man that comes along and begins to bring great opposition against him. And Zerubbabel stops the restoration of the temple after just two years, and it sits idle for 14 years. And this is where Haggai comes into play when he comes in in chapter number 1 of Haggai and says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Uh, you run every man to your own house, and this house lie waste. Um, and he tells them, he said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, uh, go up to the mountain and, and uh, get wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And uh, this, is, this is where the prophecy of Haggai comes into play. After 14 years of a stalled uh, restoration of the temple, uh, God tells Haggai, Listen, you need to go tell these people, consider your ways. You dwell in your sealed houses, and my house lies waste. He said, Y'all need to go up, and, and let's get this thing done. And so that kind of is how all that fits together. Uh, the contemporaries of Ezra, you have uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, kind of at the same time. Uh, Ez, uh, Esther, uh, falls, her book falls in between the first and the second return. So between the time of Zerubbabel and the time of Ezra uh, is the time period of Esther. So if you want to know where her book fits into this, um, she is the wife of Xerxes and uh, the mother of Artaxerxes, who gives Nehemiah the uh, permission to go back to Jerusalem. And uh, so you see how, how even God put Esther in place to be able to bring about uh, Nehemiah going back. Um, and so that's kind of that time period. Also during this time period, from the stalled uh, restoration of the temple for that 14-year period, uh, you have uh, Haggai. And you have Zechariah. Uh, those two prophets come on the scene, and God uses them, and they're instrumental in encouraging the people uh, to get back to building the temple and restoring the temple again. And so you see how kind of all these books tie together historically. 
A lot of them are contemporaries to each other. Uh, a lot of them are dealing with the same time periods. And when we know that and we understand that, uh, it helps us to, um, when we read these books, have a little bit of a background and a setting on it. I want us to look at a couple verses real quick and then we'll be done. I know it's about 11 minutes till. Bear with me. I want us to look at some key verses and then we're going to deal with um, the issue of Ezra again next week and go a little bit deeper into it. But uh, let's take a little bit to look at the, uh, the keys to Ezra. The key verses, is, first of all, is Ezra 1, chapter 1, verse number 3. Let's look at that one, Ezra chapter 1 and verse number 3. We're going to look at a couple verses here, and then we'll be dismissed. Ezra 1 and verse number 3. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Now, this is from a wicked king. This is from Cyrus, the king of Persia, who this is the decree that he gives. He says, who is there among you? You find all the Jews, and they are welcome to go back to Jerusalem. So here we have the giving of the decree of Cyrus. From this moment, a, time, a stopwatch starts, and time is now ticking till the time of the Messiah. And this very instrumental moment in the Old Testament, uh, this particular verse, and uh, so from this point on, you can count down to the day that the, that the Lord's going to appear on the scene. Uh, also, let's look, and we'll talk a little bit more about these next week, but let's look at Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 10. Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 10. Ezra is used mainly to bring spiritual revival to the children of Israel, uh, mainly Judah. But uh, Israel and Judah are now under Babylonian captivity together, and so when we refer to it, we refer to it as kind of a, even though they're not technically united um, where they all love each other once again, they are united under captivity. And so we'll consider, can, we'll refer to them from this point on as Israel. Um, and so in verse number uh, 10, I want you to understand uh, the humility of Ezra and why I believe it is that God so blessed him spiritually. He says this in verse number 10. For Ezra, notice this phrase, had prepared... His heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. I I think it's a very important thing for you and I to read Scripture. I think we ought to read it daily. I think it's very important that we walk with God in time of prayer and in time of reading and understanding Scripture. But I think one of the great secrets of Ezra was this. Before he read the law, before he obeyed it, and before he taught it, he prepared his heart to read it. He prepared his heart to obey it. He prepared his heart to teach it. I think it would benefit us very well if before we come to God's Word, we ask the Lord, Lord, prepare my heart. Show me your truth. I long for it. I desire it. I love it. I cherish it. Help my heart to want to read it. And then help my heart to want to do it and be obedient to it. And then, Lord, help my heart to want to share it with others, to teach it to somebody else. I think one of the keys to Ezra's success spiritually and his power with God was not that he read the book of the law was not that he obeyed it and not that he taught it, 
I believe the great power behind him was that he prepared his heart for all of these things. And when, the, when those things happened, when he read the book of the law, when he obeyed it, and when he taught it, his heart was already prepared and he had God's hand of blessing and strength upon him. And he accomplished things that I think were uh, understandably, if you'll think about the condition Israel and Judah were in, their, their sense of rebellion and idolatry, they were used mightily by God. Ezra was used so mightily by God to accomplish his work in their lives. All right, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. We'll probably start about four or five minutes late uh, because we went a little long in Sunday school, but uh, bear with me. Take time to fellowship here, and we'll be ready to go in just a few moments. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, guide and direct our steps. Lord, so many things that are so wonderful in these Old Testament books, even as we're just doing a survey of them. Lord, we're not doing verse by verse, but so many wonderful truths that teach us things. I pray that you'd help it to guide our, our life.